Morning, church. What a privilege it is to be here with you today. For those who don't know me, I'm Pastor Mike. I'm the campus pastor in Edinburgh, and uh, i just just so glad to be back with the Callan family. It's wonderful to see you all today. Thank you for letting me be here. Just to give you a little update, um, God has been moving in a mighty way in our new home in Edinburgh already this in our, in our new location up at Camp Loma de Vida, we have had five baptisms and eight salvations. <clears throat> but you know, I, I want to tell you that so much of my, of my Christian life started right here in this very room. In fact, I remember sitting somewhere over in that section there in the middle uh, with my wife about, and this goes back to like 2002, uh, about a year after we moved to the valley. And I was sitting in, the, in, in church, and a gentleman by the name of Pastor Rex Holt was preaching a sermon. Anybody remember Pastor Rex? Was a, he had me. He had me that morning. He, well, the Lord had me, actually. And Pastor Rex was preaching a sermon about a, about a man who, who uh, I, I could not, never heard the story before, but it totally captured my attention. And he was preaching about a man named Pastor John Harper who just so happens to have been a passenger on the Titanic. And Pastor Rex starts telling this man's story, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm at the edge of my seat listening to what he's saying. And this man, Pastor John Harper, is a, was a, a, a pastor from Walworth Road Baptist Church in London, and he's on the Titanic. He's a widower. He's on the Titanic with his, his daughter and his niece, and they're heading to Chicago where he's going to go preach for a season at Moody Church. And, of course, you know what happens. That, that fateful night, April 14th, the, the, the boat strikes the, uh, the iceberg, and it quickly begins to sink. Well, here's where it really gets interesting. So Pastor John puts his uh, niece and his daughter in the lifeboats, and they survived. And the next thing Pastor John does is, is he goes and he starts to preach the gospel to people, every person he encounters while he's still on the boat. Now, we just got done singing a song about overcoming fear. And, and we're going to talk about fear today at great length, and we're going to talk about how it can play and how it does play a huge role in ruining our next. Many of you here today have, have, a, have a, a relationship with fear that's unhealthy. And what I mean by that is that you've let it hang around too long. You've let it into places in your life it shouldn't be. So Pastor Harper's going from person to person to person sharing the gospel. Then at some point the survivors said he jumped in the water. And he started swimming to people that were in the water clinging to debris. And he starts sharing the gospel with them. He's preaching. People overheard him preaching Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you and your entire household will be saved. The survivor said he preached to everybody he encountered in the water until he froze to death himself. Now you may be asking to me, okay, Pastor Mike, why... Why are you telling the story? Well, two parts. Number one, God changed my life through that message. I remember sitting there hearing that message and hearing, and it's almost as if God's saying to me, Mike, you, what are you sitting there for? I've got things for you to do. You, you need to go to work. 
I already had a job. I, had, I, 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 was, I was starting to become successful here in the valley. Things were starting to, to really turn around for us. Beautiful family. But God says, Mike, you need to go to work. And that's when the Holy Spirit started to draw me. Now, the year after that, 2003, I was still pushing back. I was still telling God no. I was still letting, letting my way be the way. And those of you who don't know my story, I had a near-death accident in, the fe- in February of 2003. And the Lord asked me if I was done doing what I wanted to do. And I said, yes, I am. And he says, are you ready to do what I want you to do? I said, yes, I am, Lord. But there was a line I had to cross in my own heart where I had to learn that Christians are often called to do hard things. Whether you believe it or not, it's not easy to do what Pastor Nick did just a few minutes ago. It's not easy to get up in front of the church and pray for a disaster. It's not easy because the words don't come naturally to us. And, if, and let me tell you, you can believe when he said there's a battle in him between his mouth and his mind. You can believe that because that's true. Because I had that same battle this week. That same anger, that same rage, that same brokenheartedness. The same, I, I even felt shame for this nation. We also forget that sometimes... Christians are called to do things that require great sacrifice. I guarantee you, Pastor Harper did not get on the Titanic thinking that he was going to end his life in the freezing waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Do you think he thought that? I don't think so. I'm sure he probably thought that he would preach until he died, and guess what? That's exactly what that man did. Friends, I want you to know that we should expect God to stretch our faith in his desire to build us up in trust of him. And in case you haven't noticed this series we're in right now that we've been in for, this is week six of Next is Now. This series primarily is about trusting God. And we get a chance to take a glimpse at the life of Joshua and we get a chance to watch how he figured it all out. We see his victories and we, we see his defeats. But one thing we see for sure, and this is something that we can all be guaranteed of, is that whatever God calls us to do, whatever he asks us to trust him in, we can be guaranteed that he's going to be right there with us. And he's not just going to be hanging around. He's going to be encouraging. He's going to be guiding. He's going to be teaching, instructing, correcting, comforting the whole way. You see, church, the truth is, whatever is worth it, whatever is deemed to be of high value is never easy to obtain. Whenever I need a reminder of that, I look to the cross of Christ as the example. The cost of the cross was extremely high, but God willfully paid for it by giving up the best he had. Church, you understand that through the cross of Christ and every drop that our Savior poured out of his precious blood reconciled us to God forever. The cost was high. 
Let me ask you this. What happens when we don't want to do the hard things? How many of you here today would have, would have jumped into the role of Pastor John Harper on the Titanic? Put your family on a boat where they were going to live, and you know that you were certain to die, but you were going to die for the cause of the gospel. How many of you today are prepared to do the hard things? Let me ask you, what happens when, when we begin to feel that God is expecting too much? Have you ever been there where you're like, man, God, you're just asking too much. This is more than I can do. Come on, give me a break. You ever been there? You can raise your hand. That's okay. I've been there more than once. Been there recently. What if your next is a call from God, just like what we saw happen this past week? What if? You see, the journey through trusting God is a, is a critical journey for the Christian believer. The, the journey to getting to the place where we trust him no matter what, I, I'm beginning to discover it's a lifelong journey. If you're like me, I have my days when my trust for God's all the way up here. Then I have my days where it's somewhere down here. But you know who I'm trusting in between? Me. I hear many Christians say over and over that they'll trust Jesus to the death. And, and these are big words. But when critical moments come to trust him, where's the boldness, church? If this is so true, why are so many Christians hiding their light? Why doesn't our life produce the glory that God so deserves as much as it should? I can tell you that when we allow feelings to have a place in us, we can potentially be on our way to missing out something great that God has for us, or, or we might even end up in a worse condition. So far in this series, we've looked at several ways that are critical to our next becoming exactly what God has always intended it to be. And by now, I'm sure you, you, you realize that we can ruin our next through a combination of many different ways. I am so good at messing things up. You know, I don't ever need the enemy's help. I can get in trouble all by myself. I don't even have to hang around with a bad group of guys. I'm good at wrecking it all on my own. First of all, I wreck it by not trusting God fully, or sometimes I don't trust him at all. Sometimes I grow impatient with his methods, and sometimes I grow even more impatient with his timing. You never really understand or appreciate this statement I'm about to tell you until you're right in the middle of it. But I heard a pastor say a long time ago that God is always on time. I'm like, that's awesome. Then he goes, but he's never early. I'm like, dang it. He's never early. Sometimes for you and me, being on time is cutting it too close, right? But God's timing is perfect. Another way we can sabotage our ruin or next is when we refuse to do the hard things that God calls us to do and we refuse to endure in this life. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. You can't refuse those hard things and you can't refuse to endure. I promise you, at least for me, 
This is one of the primary ways God is used to grow my faith. I'm going to tell you something. If God gave us everything that we wanted, we'd forget about him that fast. And like I said, whatever's worth it, whatever's valuable is not easy anyways, right? All these things that we're going to talk about today come into play when we give fear a place in our life. All these things. I'm sure by now you've learned that, that fear and a lack of trust in God go hand in hand. I'm sure there's some of you sitting here right now who are experiencing this situation, and you believe me with what I'm saying right now. Maybe some of you don't yet, might by the end of this message. But this is exactly what we're going to examine together today. We're calling this part two of how we can ruin our next. And I've only got one point to share with you today. And, uh, of course, with that one point comes four sub-points. So cancel lunch. We'll be here for a while. Lock the doors. And you're in trouble because I've had two coffees this morning. So I'm ready to rock and roll. I can go all day. But I want you to do something for me today. While we're talking about these things and we're going through it, and, and this is going to be a journey, I promise you, I would ask that you take personal inventory in your head while you're sitting there and, and be honest with yourself as to where you are in these areas I'm going to mention today. You need to have the hard conversation with yourself. The hard things start with an honest self-examination. Something that's got to be done by all of us. The question I want you to examine the most today is, have I given fear a place in my life? Does fear have authority over me or, or does it have dominion? Am I more apt to fear the unknown than I am to trust the living God? These are very, very important questions. So if you would, let's pray this morning. Bow with me. Let's pray. And then we're going to get into Joshua chapter 9. And we're going to talk about how this situation here uh, relates to our lives. Pray with me, if you will. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the goodness of your word. Thank you for the example of your saints in Scripture. God, I'm grateful that your saints made mistakes. And I'm grateful, God, that in, the, in their mistakes that you always gave them a way back. And I ask you right now, God, that you would open the, the doors in our heart to hear your word this morning, that whatever is blocking would be torn down, that we may be receive your instruction, that we may be able to face fear finally, face to face, conquering it through your power, and walk away different than we came in today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so if you got your device or your Bible or whatever you're using, Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. Bear with me, it's a lot to read, but we're going to get through it. Let's get into it. The Bible says this, When all the kings heard about Jericho and Ai, those who were west of the Jordan in the hill country, in the Judean foothills, and along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea toward Lebanon, that would be the, the Hethites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, they formed a unified alliance to fight against Joshua and Israel. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they acted deceptively. Now, church, think about this for a minute. We, we can always count on someone to try to take advantage 
of our perceived vulnerabilities, right? One of the ways that people exploit you in your own life is through fear. Now, this is exactly what this alliance is supposed to do. Cause the Israelites to shake in their sandals. And, it, and if that weren't enough, the Gibeonites have to take it further with the deception. Looking at the second part of verse 4. The gathered, they gathered provisions, the Gibeonites, and took worn out sacks on their donkeys and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They wore old patched sandals on their feet and threadbare clothing on their bodies. Their entire provision of bread was dry and crumbly. They went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant land. Please make a treaty with us. The men of Israel replied to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a treaty with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. Then Joshua asked them, Who are you and where do you come from? And they replied to him, your servants have come from a faraway land because of the reputation of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did in the, to the two Amorite kings beyond the Jordan, King Sihon of Heshbon and King Og of Bashan, who was in Ashtaroth. So our elders and the inhabitants of our land told us, take provisions with you for the journey. Go and meet with them and say, we are your servants. Please make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we took it from our houses as food on the day we left to come to you. But see, it is now dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when filled from the extremely long journey. And the men of Israel took some of their provisions but did not seek the Lord's decision. Remember that, okay? Remember that verse, verse 14. The men of Israel took some of their provisions but did not seek the Lord's decision. So Joshua established peace with them and made a treaty to let them live. And the leaders of the community swore an oath to them. Now, when you're vulnerable, and, and, and you know it. When you're vulnerable and you know it. Okay, This situation that has happened this past week in Uvalde has made the state of Texas and our country vulnerable. Vulnerable to a lot of things. I'm not going to go into all the, the who's and what's of it all, but, but you understand that, there, that there's, a, there's a shadow of fear cast over our nation right now. A shadow of fear. Everybody's got ideas on how to solve this problem, but it's, it's underneath an overcast shadow of fear. And fear can enable us to act haphazardly Fear can, can enable us to rely only on our ways and our understanding. And as a result, guess what happens? God does not get consulted. His word is forgotten. And there is no way we will be able to wait on timing, his timing for things. God is taken completely out of the picture. Have you heard anybody who has proposed a solution to these school shootings bring up God? Fear has canceled him out. Now we're going to look at the deception of the Gibeonites as it's been discovered. Verse 16, three days after making the treaty with them, they heard that the Gibeonites were their neighbors living among them. So the Israelites set out and reached the Gibeonite cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, 
Chephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the community had sworn an oath to, the, to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then the whole community grumbled against the leaders. All the leaders answered them, We have sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch him. We're, we're going to keep our word even though we want to really give it to these guys for lying to us. But this is how we will treat them. We will let them live so that no wrath will fall on us because of the oath we swore to them. Hey, you know what? Even though they acted deceptively, we're not going to be deceptive. We're not going to go against our word. We're going we're to hold up to our end of the deal. So they also said, let them live. So the Gibeonites became woodcutters and water carriers for the whole community as the leaders had promised them. Now Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said to them, why did you deceive us by telling us you live far away from us when in fact you live among us? Therefore you are cursed and will always be slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And the Gibeonites answered him, it was clearly communicated to your servants that the Lord your God has commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. We greatly feared for our lives because of you, and this is why we did this. Now we are in your hands. Do whatever you think is right. So this is what Joshua did to them. He rescued them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. On that day, he made them woodcutters and water carriers, as they are today, for the community and for the Lord's altar at the place he would choose. So let, let me, before we jump into my one point with, with this many sub-points here, let me point out a few things before we get into it about where this, how and where this applies to us. So first of all, even though we've been going through a book the last five weeks called Joshua, let me make it clear, okay? And I hope you see this. This book is not ultimately about Joshua. It's not about his great accomplishments or his achievements. It's about the one who already has the reputation, the one who already has the fame, and the one who has all the great achievements and accomplishments. This book is about the living God. So that means, Christian, that your story is not your story. It's not about you or what you've done. It's ultimately about God and what he's done in you and through you. Listen, when they talk at your funeral one day, Christian, what they should be talking about is what God did in your life and that you were faithful to him. That's what they should be talking about. And if they're not, it's because you weren't faithful. And then it might not even be a legacy worth mentioning. But our life, it's meant to glorify God. Secondly, even though the Gibeonites acted deceptively, one part of their story was actually true. They did want to make a treaty with Israel because they feared the reputation of the living God. Remember what they said in verse 9? We heard of his fame. We know what he's like. But Joshua and Israelite and Israel made decisions about how to deal with the Gibeonites without consulting the living God. I mean, look, they even made a covenant with these people without consulting God. Do you know why this is in Scripture? Because this is 
pointing out something that God does not want us to do. God does not want you making decisions or covenants without consulting him. Those of you in this room right now that are engaged to be married, has God given you the okay? Does he know? Have you consulted him? Listen, you might think I'm crazy, but if you're thinking about having a baby, shouldn't you talk to the creator first? It would be good to have his favor, right? It would be good to have his blessing. And this leads perfectly right into our main point for today's message this morning. How do we ruin our next? Well, we make now decisions without God's direction. Friends, listen. The Joshua we we see here in chapter 9 is not the Joshua we saw in the first two chapters. The Joshua in the first two chapters was treading lightly in great reverence for the living God, consulting him with everything. Consulting him with everything. I would believe that Joshua even went as far as to say, Lord, I want to put the bathrooms over there in the camp. Is that okay? He was consulting God on everything. Now he's making treaties with foreign armies without talking to them. God does not want us doing that. God does not want us doing that. I'm going to tell you something. When I, when I, when I contemplate what's happened here, and, and me thinking for God on my behalf has turned out to be nothing but deadly. And I've learned that the best way I can speak for God is just to quote Scripture. He speaks for me. He governs me. So I'm going to quote scripture right now because his word has already given us the warnings. Proverbs 14, 12 says this. There is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end it brings death. Listen, we've all made choices. We've all made decisions that we were certain were the correct ones. And then what happens when they don't work out the way we thought they would? We blame God, right? God, you should have never gave me the money or the desire to go to college because I failed the first semester. Why'd you do this? And, of course, the Holy Spirit says, well, maybe you should have studied a little bit more instead of watching Obi-Wan Kenobi. And you might have passed. But we've all made choices on our own self-reliance. We've all made decisions based on what we think is best for us. You know, I got to tell you, um, my decisions that I make are so selfish. I'm going to give you the example I always give the guys at Man Church on Wednesday nights. I use it a lot in Edinburgh, so if there's any of my Edinburgh folks here, don't fall asleep on me here. When you are hungry... Do you care if anybody else is hungry? No. No, some of you sitting here right now are about ready to bite somebody in this room because you're so hungry. But do you care if anybody else is hungry? No, you don't. You see, we, we're, our decisions are extremely selfish. And how about when we think we need an answer now? Come on, God, I, I applied for this job and I got to give notice to my, by Thursday, I need to know. Oh, the Lord's like, well, let me get on that right away. Let me open all those doors for you and make that work out. How about when we think we even know the answer already? Oh, I know this. I'm going to talk to God. Boy, that's a big one. Human nature will allow us to ignore God 
and forget about him completely. I'll tell you something right now. In these moments when God's not involved, we will ultimately suffer for that. I promise you. By the way, do you know that God wants to be involved in every detail in your life? Do you know he wants this thing with you called a relationship? And he wants to live and dwell with you in everything. He wants to experience all of your smiles, all of your laughs, your frowns, your cries. He wants to be a part of it all. Don't think he doesn't want to sit in the living room with your family and just talk, because he does. Can't you make God that personal because he is? See, the solution to this problem is extremely simple. Two simple steps. The first one is to consult God on everything. Remember what Proverbs 14, 12 said. There's a way that seems right. We thought we had it all figured out, God. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. After you consult him, be adult enough to wait for his answer. Be adult enough be grown up enough to wait for his answer. And I promise you, God will always speak you through his word. Always. And if you're one of those people that need to hear God's voice, then just read his word out loud and you'll hear his voice, okay? I'm going to ask you this question now, and this is a question I want you to, to carry with you for the rest of the day if you would. When you make decisions to choose to exclude Jesus or when you decide to run from him, I want to ask you, who in fact do you then consult and who then do you, do you run to instead? When you take God out of the picture completely, who's your go-to source? See how dangerous that is? The next way we can ruin our next is by relying on past experiences. Hey, how many people here are hung up on the past? Every guy who's married saying she is, he's pointing to his wife right now. <laughs> you know, one of the things I've discovered in marriage counseling is that women are more apt to get historical and hysterical, both. <laughs> and uh, poor guy sits there and he's just... I mean, I sent my wife a meme last night um, of this guy kissing this woman, and she's got this blank look on her face, and apparently it says something like, when you're kissing her all over, and she remembers that one time you lied to her on June 27th at 2.15 p.m. <laughs> Even though it may seem like you can say in life, hey, I've been through this before, no two experiences are exactly the same. Isn't that the truth? And, and here I'm going to give an example, and it's based on one of the 712 reasons why I'm glad God made me a man, okay? No two of them, both of my, my wife had two pregnancies, and neither pregnancy was the same. She, she had different cravings. She had different this and different that. I, I really feel for you ladies. I mean, I don't know how you do it. But on top of that, both my kids are completely different. Number one, I wasn't prepared to be a father the first time. And then the second time around, you're like, okay, I think I know what I'm doing. Comes along, I got nothing. 
Second kid, and, and I, the, my second child is a boy. I thought, well, I know how to handle a boy. I got nothing. <laughs> now I'm parenting adults. I still got nothing. It's crazy. But just because you can relate to something or have some familiarity with it does not mean God has given you the green light to respond or move forward. The one thing about Scripture is that one of its many beauties is that it gives us lessons. It gives us examples of lessons learned. Look at Psalm 119, verse 67 to 68. Look at what the writer says here. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word, for you are good and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. Now think about that. Before I was afflicted, okay, before I was corrected, before God disciplined me, I went astray. Before I made a decision that brought an unfavorable circumstance into my life, I went astray. I chose to go at it alone. Or I chose to disregard God's commands. You with me? So he's remembering back and he's saying, I've learned something. He's saying, but now, now I keep your word. Why? Because you are so good and you do what is good. God, continue to teach me about your goodness. Now look what he says here in verse 71. Some more reflection, some more honest heart, speaking about lessons learned. He says, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. You know what, God? Had you not come along and disciplined me, it could have been a lot worse. It was good that I was afflicted so that I could learn the right way to go. You know, my dad used to tell me, I remember the last time he told me, I was about 20 years old, he said, son, it is not required to hit every hole in the road in life. You don't have to. You don't have to hit every hole in the road. And the psalmist writes this in verse 72, instruction from your lips is better for me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. God, I can't even put a value on how much your word means to me. I can't even put a value on how much your instruction means to me. And, and I, don't, I don't care what you had to do to straighten me out. Thank you. You ever had a conversation like that? So maybe you're saying, okay, what's the past for? And, and how can it be beneficial to us now? Well, I, I think the past has got two lessons. First, that, uh, that God intends it to become a learning tool. But let me tell you something about the past. Leave it in the past, okay, it can't be undone. It's there. Live in the now with Christ. Let the past be where it's supposed to be behind you. It's not who you are anymore anyways. And if you remember about your past and you remember those wounds, stop for a moment and think about the method that you use to trust yourself and think about the plans you made apart from God and then you already know how it's going to work out. I like to ask myself these three questions before I make any major decisions in my life. And I'm getting to the point now where I, I involve these questions in pretty much everything. Uh, I, I, you're probably going to find this hard to believe, but I have a problem with words coming out of my mouth before I think. 
Sometimes I, I do it in meetings with the other pastors, and, you know, they pray for me, thankfully. <laughs> Pastor Louis shakes his head. He's like, hey, Mike. It's okay. But I try to employ these three questions, and the first one is this. Is what I'm about to think, say, or do going to glorify me or glorify God? See, I had the decision to make coming up here this morning to preach this message. It's either going to be about me or it's going to be about him. And what I've been praying for all night last night and up until this morning each time as I stand here and worship was God empty myself of me and fill me up with you. Is what I'm about to do going to glorify him or is it going to glorify me? Next question is, is what I'm about to do, say, or think, is it going to set me apart from the world? You see, I'm called, you're called to live apart from the world, to be in it but not of it, right? To go against the grain. God is calling you to be a light in dark places. Right now, you are one of maybe the only Christian in your workplace. What are you doing about it? Do you understand God's given you spheres of influence in every single one of your people groups you belong to? Do you understand that he expects you to use that sphere of influence to glorify him? I'm not talking about walking with somebody at work and saying, hey, man, you better turn or burn. I'm not saying that. Okay? But you know what you can do? You can walk up to somebody at work and say, hey, uh, how can I pray for you today? Because I, I, really I really want the best for you. How can I pray for you? You're going to freak people out when you ask that question. And that's good. But you ask the questions. Be the first one to step out of the room when the, the conversation goes crude or inappropriate. And when they ask you, hey, where'd you go? That, that kind of language just doesn't do me any good, man. And I can't, I can't allow that. I don't want that part of my life. Be honest. Tell them how it is. But you don't got to shove it down their throat. You don't got to be forceful. But be the light. Go against the culture. And then the third question I ask myself is this. Is what I'm about to do, say, or think going to increase or decrease my sanctification? You see... I'm in this process right now. It's a lifelong process. It's called sanctification. And if I get out of the way and let God be God in my life, and if I let him have my whole heart, he makes me a little bit more like Jesus each day. But I can screw that up too. When I start making decisions for me or without his counsel, put my sanctification in a holding pattern. You know what that does, right? That grieves the Holy Spirit of God. You don't want to do that. Paul says in Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God who has sealed you for the day of redemption. You know what that word means? That, that, that passage right there gives us an image of what happens when you die. Do you get that? That the Holy Spirit who lives in you is the one who delivers your soul to the throne of God in a moment? Do you know that? about you, but I don't want to get in the middle and mess any of that up. It's a beautiful piece of scripture, isn't it? Another way we can ruin our next is by trusting our own judgment or, in a sense, trusting the wrong forces. Sometimes we do a good job of ruining our next without the enemy's help at all. Like I said, I never need any help getting in trouble. But friends, we cannot allow ourselves 
to become God's voice selfishly. And we can easily do this when we confuse his blessings and we try to take credit for them as our own self-made success. You heard that expression before. How many of you heard that expression, uh, I'm a self-made man? You ever heard that before? I heard that growing up. And I got to tell you, that's a bunch of garbage. Heard it a lot. Heard it from my dad. He said it a lot. So I did some research and I found out where this statement came from. And a, and a gentleman named Henry Clay, he was a United States senator, said it for the first time in 1842. At least that's the first time it was written down. But he described it meaning individuals whose success lay within the individuals themselves and not with outside conditions. As Bobby Boucher would say, wrong again, Colonel Sanders. <laughs> Henry Clay got it all wrong, church. There's no such thing as a self-made man. God makes all men and then blesses them as he sees fit. So that means all of your abilities, your knowledge, your understanding, all your gifts that make you who you are have all been given to you by the living God. You and I create nothing. Do you understand that? <laughs> Pastor Nick talked about prayer night. There may not be nothing, there may not be anything in your life more important than prayer. Corporately and privately. It's extremely important. And it's our communication with God that is essential to the health of our spirit. We need to be hearing from God daily. And, and we exercise a huge piece of our human nature and our pride when we make prayer absent from our lives. When it's not a priority. When we don't consult him, we don't trust him, it's because we feel like we don't need him. We think our judgment are sufficient. When I ask any of you sitting here today who, who have had great success or who feel like you're a self-made man or a self-made woman, and I hope you know that's not the case. When I ask you, how many 911 prayers have you prayed in the last two years because things got out of hand or they didn't go the way you were leading them to? How many 911 prayers have you thrown up to heaven saying, I'm in trouble, Jesus? Last two years, think about it. Next way we can ruin our next is by not consulting God for future decisions or once again, being impatient with his timing. Listen, church, success can bring you down just as much as failure can if you pursue your goals apart from God. That's all I'm going to say about it. Remember, all good things come from him. Finally, building something that we thought was Ours when it all is God's. Every one of us here have exercised that, that terrible choice of taking credit for God's work. Your family, your children, they all belong to the Lord. He chose you, parents, to be his example 
and teaching them how to live, and he expects you to teach them to be obedient to him. I promise you the best way to do this is for your children to look at you and see Jesus. See an image of God. Let me ask your parents, how do you think you're doing with this? So as we gather all this stuff together, we see how our, our, our next is ruined by a lot of things that seem to be uh, as a result of knee-jerk reactions, uh, haphazard decisions that are made without much time to contemplate how they might actually turn out. Does that sound familiar? Or sometimes you just think you're that good, but you don't need God. Well, let me just share with you four ways that fear can ruin your next and how it, in these four ways it's involved in our lives every single day. <clears throat> the first way that fear can ruin our next is that fear will force you to eventually stop praying. I, I encourage you to write these down. You know, oftentimes fear disrupts our thoughts so thoroughly that we cannot slow down and focus on a true heartfelt connection with God through prayer. Think about how scared people got from COVID. Couldn't process a single thought. Remember, there was a time when you were afraid to touch your mail? Remember those days? We got to spray every box. The, the, the virus lives for 17 years outside the body. <laughs> but there's times when it'll disrupt your thought patterns so thoroughly that you can't concentrate on praying. And because we're unable to concentrate, we convince ourselves through guilt that we weren't able to give God our best. So what happens? We give him nothing instead. Since fear and guilt are so connected, we become convinced that we're not even good enough to pray, so we just don't anymore. Look, if you're having a hard time praying to God, tell him. Lord, I'm struggling right now. I can't seem to hear you. I can't put two thoughts together. Can you please help me? And then guess what? you got to do something. you got to cut off every distraction and every outside source that can pull you away from what you're trying to do. And you get alone with God and you get serious. Don't let fear force you to stop praying. Something else fear will do. You'll repent, but you won't change. That's a problem with a lot of Christians today in our church is they do a lot of this, but they do very little of this. They talk a great game, and they tell you how good they are, and then they go back and they live exactly like the world. What was that repentance? Well, let me tell you, it was nothing. But fear will do that. Believe it or not, fear can actually suppress or keep us from owning our sin. Why do we get so afraid of owning our sin? Because sin comes with a price, right? Fear is certainly related to guilt, and when we are overcome by it, true repentance rarely happens because we are often waiting for the circumstances to change before we actually do. How about that? And you know what? Some of us even think that when the circumstances changed, that God's forgiven us. No, that's not what that means. That means God's just spared you from the circumstances. That's what that means. 
But just being sorry isn't enough. God expects us to turn away from the bad behavior and move towards holiness. Instead, we often try to make deals with God like, if you can just get me out of this mess, God, I'll never do this again, I promise. Who's done that before? This is not repentance and this, and this is not a negotiation. Don't let fear keep you from turning away from your sin. Fear, if, if left to hang around long enough, will poison your faith. Fear will eventually poison your faith, belief in the sacred and holy mysteries of God and his unknown qualities become easier to question and doubt when you hold on to fear. All of us are left with unanswered questions about God and the mysteries of who he is. It's just the way it's going to have to be. But when fear is allowed to linger, we doubt what we do know because we focus on what we don't. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Gone is the simple fact that God is all that the Bible says he is, and we fear God either won't help us, he can't help us, or he just doesn't care. So we believe the fear, and our faith becomes poisoned. With fear as our heart's director, now hope is on the chopping block, and hope that comes from true faith is also diminished. In fact, hope will actually grow cold or disappear altogether. Let me ask you, what is there for a person to hope for or have faith in if God can be questioned or doubted? When we allow this to happen, that person is no longer able to see anything but fear in every situation. And here's the last one. This is so huge. Fear destroys our ability to love and be loved. Fear can handicap you so bad. It can handcuff you so tight that even your ability to love and receive and express Christian love becomes damaged. Since fear will eventually warp the true appearance of everything, it only makes sense that fear will force us to focus only on other people's flaws and imperfections. You do that to make yourself feel better, by the way. Fear will force you into the comparison game and you start focusing on other people's flaws. And you do that, like I said, to make yourself feel better. Fear teaches a person to eventually expect the worst and can even make a person's love paranoid and untrusting. Instead of a selfless love, the fearful person becomes extremely selfish and cynical. What is really sad is that when a person is governed by fear, they will often subconsciously seek a love that pities instead of one that respects. Fear is one of your greatest enemies. We've got it all over us right now in this nation. We've got it all over us right now in the state of Texas. Don't let it be all over your home. Don't let it be all over your heart. Let me ask you to stand, if you would, please. Some of you here today are in that, this place where you're relating to everything I'm saying about fear. Something in your life is, 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 is pending uh, an outcome. There's a decision. There's an answer you're waiting for, and it hasn't come yet. Maybe it's something that you need or something you've done, something you're hoping for. And as you wait, 
You're letting fear kick you in the teeth over and over and over. I promise you God does not want that. What God wants for you to do in the waiting time is to trust him. God's going to use the waiting time to change your heart. It's one of the most powerful times that we have in our relationship with him is when he makes us wait and when the saint continually goes back to him over and over and over until he answers. Does that make sense? But some of you are stuck in fear and you don't know what to do. You've experienced something terrible. You, you've, there's been a big loss, a loss of a loved one, a loss of a job. Maybe it's a bunch of little losses in a row that have you scared. This is not how the living God wants you to live. And he wants to give you victory over fear. Maybe one of the reasons why fear is such a hold on you is because you know Jesus, but he's not Lord. You have him as Savior, which is great. But guess what? The, the Savior-Lord thing is a package deal. And you got to love him both ways. He's got to be Savior. He's got to be Lord of all in your life. Or he's not Lord at all in your life. And if you haven't submitted to him as Savior, uh, uh, as Lord, excuse me, if you haven't submitted to him as Lord, I, I, I want to say something here. Put your seatbelts on. You may not be saved if you just have him as Savior, not as Lord. Because when we submit to his Lordship, that's when we change. And that's when our lives change. And that's when people around us change. Remember, you've been given spheres of influence by the living God. Each one of you have a special sphere of influence in all the people groups that you belong to. And you've been called to be a light in that group. But if Jesus is not Lord, you can't make the dent he needs you to make because you haven't changed. So there's a a dangerous place to be right now if you're in here and you think you're coming to church and you're good because I got Jesus as Savior, but he's Lord 35% of the time. Not going to be good enough. So I want to ask you to do right now is I want you to bow your head and close your eyes because the Bible says that there are some things that the Lord God himself needs to hear us say out of our own mouths. There are things that your own ears need to hear you say. And these are extremely important things. I would say that your life depends on these things. Your eternity depends on these things. And the things that he wants you to say are found in Romans chapter 10. Verses 9 and 10 where Paul says that we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we will be saved. And when you make that declaration with your mouth, after your mouth has become in agreement with your heart, then your life changes. You see, if you, if you just say it and your life doesn't change, then you just agree with your mouth. That doesn't mean nothing, guys. This is a heart condition. And the Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart does the mouth speak. So there's things that you got to say. So I'm going to say a prayer right now. And look, there is no special incantation or magical prayer formula. There isn't. It's just a matter of a human being 
opening their heart and pouring it out on the floor in front of the living God and saying, this is all I got. So you can take my words today and you can make them yours. I want you to think about this now because some of you here think you're saved. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to scare you. But you know something? This is the, this is the, this is the worst part about it right here. Every one of those people that died in Uvalde woke up not knowing that was their last day. God's telling you today to get right. He's telling you to get with him. And that if today is your last day, it'll only be your last day here. Right? So pray with me. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I love you. I thank you so much for Jesus. I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I have gone my own way willfully against you. God, I have hurt you. I have hurt myself and I have hurt others and I am so sorry. But today, Lord, I'm confessing from the depths of my heart with my mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and that he died on the cross for my sins and rose again on the third day and I believe it with all of me and I'm ready to let that change my entire life. Receive my confession, Lord. Change me. Make me a new creation. And give me the strength and the courage to be the light that you set apart me to be before you laid the foundation of the world. Ask and pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.